You're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast, a show devoted to board and card games, created for you, the people that play them. On today's show, I'll take my first impressions of Coup Resistance and Eldritch Horror, followed by the top game of 2013, from my perspective, that is. I am your host, Luke Hector, and I'm that second farmer that stole all your field points in Carcassonne. Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to the podcast. It's the 23rd of December 2013. I'm in Portsmouth, and it is one of the most stormy nights we have ever had in the last, well, I suppose two weeks, really. It's been nothing but storms in the last two weeks. Audacity is fairly good at siphoning out old noise that you don't want in the background. So, with any luck, this podcast shouldn't be too much affected. As for the blog itself, recent reviews have been fairly minimal. It has been a busy month in the accountancy profession. However, only this morning, my Caverner K Farmers review was uploaded to BoardGameGeek and to the blog itself. I know a lot of people have been waiting for me to get that review up, and I've been very excited to get it up and fully written. It is possibly the longest review I have ever written, and not only does it go into the general gameplay of Caverna, it also discusses the pros and cons as well as its comparison to Agricola, which is effectively its predecessor. You might have heard a different intro to this podcast from last week. Well, I did say I wanted to try and make the podcast a little bit more consistent, and I'm still experimenting with my preferred introductions. I think I'm going to be keeping this format now for the time being, because I listened to last week's and... I almost thought I sounded a bit cheesy going on about the, here's your host. You know, it almost sounded like a game show or something. You know, I mean, I know the Dice Tower can pull it off. That's because they've got people like Eric Summer doing the voice. And, you know, he's a voice teacher, voice coach or something like that in real life. So he knows what he's doing. He can make it sound fine. Me, I'm just a random bloke in Portsmouth. I can't really have the same sort of skills as he does. But I quite like the format I've done for this episode. I like just basically saying what the show is, who it's for, and then making a little gag or link to a particular game or some irritating part that tends to screw you over in a game or something that annoys you, just for a laugh. Like in this example, I said I was the second farmer in Carcassonne that stole all your field points. Now, if you've played Carcassonne, you'll know that you get the points for the farm unless somebody happens to get an extra meeple in the field. And when that happens, you just hate the guy, don't you? So I figured that would make a good starting point. Plus, I think I've got Carcassonne on the brain at the moment, actually. Ever since I played it in the 12-hour marathon the other week, I've wanted to get it to the table again, and I'm going back to Taunton to visit the folks for Christmas, and that means I get to play Carcassonne a lot more, so I'm quite excited for that. But anyway, enough rabbiting on, let's get to the first impressions. Now, this is an unplanned first impression on the podcast. I was originally only going to do Eldritch Horror, which will come up next, but I was asked to get a written review up of The Resistance Coup, which is a small card game that has come out recently. It's basically a reprint of one that was already done, but just with the theme of The Resistance on it. Now, I wasn't really going to do a written review of this game, because I tend to do written reviews of games that I can either borrow or I own. And I don't have a copy of Coup. I have merely played it several times at my local group. But I thought I would stick it on the podcast as an extra first impression. Now, The Resistance Coup is a bluffing card game where 
You want to be the last player with influence left, and your influence is represented by face-down character cards in your playing area. Each player starts the game with two coins and two influence, and that's their cards, like I said before. The characters vary from the Duke, the Assassin, Contessa, Captain, Ambassador, and each one has a different ability. There are also free extra actions, income, foreign aid, and coup that you can take regardless of what characters you actually have. Now, on your turn, you can basically state that you're going to perform a specific action for a character. It doesn't matter if you have the character or not in front of you, you are effectively trying to bluff your way to an ability you don't have, or you're just utilising one that you do have. It is then up to other players to suss out whether you're telling the truth, in which case they accept that you are and you get to use the ability, whether you have the character or not, or they challenge you, in which case the loser of the challenge loses one of their influence cards. Effectively, it re represents lives. So you've got two lives. As soon as you lose both lives, you are out. Now, does this sound familiar? It may do if you've been looking at my written reviews in the last couple of months. You would notice that I reviewed a game called Masquerade, which is effectively the party game version of this game. It's got the same premise where you have several characters, each with abilities. You have one in front of you. It may not necessarily be the one you want the ability for, but you bluff it anyway. The difference between the two is that Masquerade is more light-hearted and has the memory aspect where you have to not only bluff which character you have, you also have to remember which character you were because they get swapped around the place. Coup doesn't have the memory aspect. The two cards you have in front of you are there for the game unless you use a specific character, the Ambassador, to swap them with a deck of cards where there's multiple copies of all the others. I've not really gone for this game. A lot of people are raving about it, and a lot of people do like it, but I honestly would rather play Masquerade in an instant over this game. And I'll tell you why. First off, there's only five characters in this game. Masquerade has enough to fill 13 players. Okay, it's a party game, it's meant to, but it still has a big selection of characters. And this one only has five. And they're also not that interesting either. I mean, you've just got take three coins, uh, pay three coins and assassinate someone, block an assassination, take two coins from someone else, and draw cards on the deck. That's it. That's pretty much what they do. Another problem I've noticed is that one of the characters, the Duke, he takes three coins from the treasury, which is more than you can do from income or foreign aid or any other character, and he can also block someone from taking foreign aid which is one of the more reliable ways of getting money. Now, compared to all the other characters, he's always been a bit overpowered, in my opinion. Every game I've played, multiple people will claim they are the Duke. They couldn't care less if they were the Assassin, Contessa, Captain or Ambassador. They will always try and get the Duke. So, okay, yeah, some of them are bluffing and you're meant to suss out which ones, but you can tell from those plays that the Duke is just better. Because why do you want coins in the first place? Well, the coup action allows you to pay seven coins and effectively force someone to lose a life. That's it. Seven coins, lose a life, there you go. Now, with the Duke, you can effectively get there in three turns and you would only have to use the Duke twice successfully in order to get to that point. In fact, actually, you start off with two coins, so you would only be able to do it in two turns with the Duke's power. And because everybody is claiming they're the Duke, who do you claim as lying? 
And in the end, you don't really have much of a way to remember who anyone is until they flip their card to say, yes, I was indeed this character. And okay, you can remember that for later and draw your tactics based on that. But I just find this game a bit dry. Masquerade is not my favourite game of all time. I like it, but it's a party game and I can take or leave party games. And Masquerade gets more people involved has a bigger selection of characters, and because it has the memory aspect, it just makes it that much more fun, because you not only have to think which character you're using, but then you've just got the chaos of swapping people's cards. Here, they don't swap. The only one who can do it is the ambassador. And depending on which two characters you pick up at the start, can seriously cripple your game. If you were lucky enough to pick up the Duke and the Contessa, you have got possibly the best combination you can hope for. Because the Duke will just allow you to take coins constantly and block someone else from taking foreign aid, and the Contessa blocks assassinations so the assassin can't get at you. Which basically means that the only way that people will get money off you is by being the captain, of which case there are multiple ways to block the captain, and failing that, everybody's going to challenge it anyway at some point, or to basically coup you. And because the Duke is the best way to get money, you're going to do it faster than they are. I have seen the Duke and the Contessa just win games purely because it is nigh on impossible to beat that combination. My first game, I had two assassins as my starting characters. So I didn't have anything to swap them with. All I could do, truthfully, was assassinate people. Problem is, if you're playing with a big group, somebody's going to challenge you. It's not often that, you know, quotes don't get challenged by players, so bluffing your way out isn't necessarily as easy as you think. And I just find this game a bit dry. The resistance theme on it is pretty much pointless. I've played an older version of this where it just uses basic, like, 17th century artwork on it, and the only difference between that and this version is that this one just looks more futuristic and a bit more colourful. And that's it. Apart from that, you might as well just not put the resistance theme on it, it's relatively pointless. And at least with the old version, you had the expansion which allowed you to be either Christian or Protestant, and that affected how the game plays. And that was better, I'll give it credit, that improved it. But it still just doesn't grab me. This is supposed to be one of those games that is just light and quick filler, and basically bridges the way for a bigger game. Now, there's a lot of those in production at the moment, a lot. So if you're going to wow me in that category, you've got to be pretty good. Now, the three that I own specifically, um, No Thanks, a brilliant little filler game. You can teach it in 30 seconds. It takes less than five minutes to play. Kakalak and Poker, which, in my opinion, is probably a better bluffing game than this one, purely because it's a bit more simplistic to teach to people. And because there's no outright winner, you don't have that sense of conflict that puts some non-gamers off. It always goes down well and costs less than this game, even. And the other one I have is Love Letter, which is just, well, Love Letter is taking the world by storm. It's simple, it's got barely any cards in it, but I like that game. It's got, okay, the characters aren't as interesting either, but at least they've got abilities that differ a lot from each other, and they're a bit more unique in some respects as well. And also Love Letter you can get for about six quid. It gives you a cool little bag as well. Again, better value than this game. I don't mind Coup as such, but it's just... It, really doesn't grab me. I just think it's a bit unbalanced. It's a bit dry. The whole resistance theme is pointless. There is no point of it being there. It's just literally a re-theming of the cards. And 
there are better filler and bluffer games out there, so this one just doesn't make the cut for me. I'm probably going to get a lot of heat for this, but it's just not for me. So, that's cool. Okay, this is another big one for me. Eldritch Horror. Finally, I got a chance to play this game. I have a friend at the Southampton on board group who is a bigger Arkham fanatic than I am. You know, he has read the books, he has all of the Arkham expansions like I do, but he has loads of fan variants, he's even created his own fan variants. So, who else was I going to trust to have Eldritch Horror in possession for me to play but him? I've been tempted to get it myself, but I've just been a bit scared of the game, because I have put a lot of investment and time into those Arkham Horror games that I've got. And for one to just suddenly come out and say, this is streamlined Arkham, you might not need the old ones anymore. Huh? Oh! You know, you can't make me sell off the old Arkham games. No, 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 I like them too much. So I was a bit worried about playing this game. However, objectively, I still wanted to enjoy it. Eldritch Horror plays much the same way as Arkham Horror. There is an ancient one stirring. You and your investigators have to basically solve mysteries, gain clues and battle monsters in order to stop him. The difference between this and Arkham Horror is that Arkham Horror takes place in a city, a fictional city, from H.P. Lovecraft's stories. Eldritch Horror takes place worldwide. It's still based on the whole fiction of H.P. Lovecraft, but instead of just going around these particular districts in Arkham, you, you can go to Arkham, but then you can go down to Buenos Aires, you can go to Sydney, you can go to Tokyo, so it's around the globe. And to be fair, that's quite that gives it a bit more of an epic scale. Although you do wonder just how long do you spend actually travelling around, because this is set in the 1920s odd. So you can imagine that world travel took a lot longer than it used to. So you must think that the Ancient One's taking its sweet time, stirring in its slumber, waiting to come across. It's like, you know, tapping on its watch, going, come on, I'm waiting, you know. But, no, well, I've got, I digress, that's a minor quibble. Like in Arkham, you will go to various locations, pick up clues, and have encounters, which is basically picking up a card and reading the flavour text, as well as making skill checks based on stats such as will or strength or influence, and as you go through the game, you have to solve mysteries for each ancient one before you get to a certain point where like the doom track reduces to zero or you run out of Mephos cards and deck or you will die until such a point when the ancient one comes out and potentially screws up the whole world and you lose. When I played this, we played against the Lurker in a Threshold and... It was an enjoyable game. I really liked it. I chose Silas Marshall, who I think is the sailor bloke. Uh, we had three other investigators with us, and we fought against the Lurker. And we managed to win by the fair skin of our teeth. We only had about three Mephos cards left. And we were struggling to get the mysteries done, because only one of us was a dedicated spellcaster. And the rest of us were struggling to just find spells, let alone get a law skill up to a point. But... Each of us had our own little story going along. I had a habit of picking up paranoia conditions that never went off. Um, I was also collecting items left, right and centre, like literally carrying a huge duffel bag full of the things and giving them out to people. But, you know, generally, other than that, I was going through the motions and there were some better combatants than I have. So I was kind of collecting the items and solving the mysteries. But, all in all, how do I compare this to Arkham Horror? Because... Don't get me wrong, I like this game. But here's the differences. Arkham Horror does have a longer setup time, and it does mm, sort of take longer, but to be honest, Eldritch Horror can still whack up a three hours without too much trouble. 
especially if you're teaching a new players and you really take time to read the flavor text. So both games can take a long time. But Arkham Horror does take longer to set up with normal components. This one still takes a while though, but the only reason my Arkham games take less time to set up is because I redesigned the inserts. I might get a video uploaded of that at some point when I start testing out video reviews, so more on that on another day. But other similarities is that it's pretty much the same premise. The Ancient Ones are still the same. The Investigators are the same. You know, they they were used in Arkham as well. Um, but here's some of the more key differences. Firstly, monsters. Monsters can spawn out of gates. You can go and fight them. But in Arkham, it was basically, it's jumped you, and if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Kill or be killed. In this one, you can wound them and then run and leave them be. They might heal, they might not but it means that you don't have to fight to the death. Now, both of those work for me, I suppose. They both make sense. You know, you wouldn't necessarily be able to kill a gruesome being from another world in one go, but then if you do encounter one of these things, are you then going to just wound it and then run to the next country and back? Not really. You would probably take it out there and then. So, you know, it's a scale thing. You could take it or leave it whichever way on the monster front. But... The Eldritch Horror is known as Streamlined Arkham. The rules are more simplistic, even though there's still quite a lot of options. Uh, a lot of the fiddly aspects of Arkham Horror are not there anymore. Um, you still have a lot of cards with all the flavor text and encounters, but they're separated by city, wilderness, and sea. And you've also got specific encounters for clues and expeditions, which is this... Uh, compass token that goes around the board and it's basically special encounters for artifacts kind of like i quite like that aspect actually the expeditions it makes you feel like you're playing a game of tomb raider so i tended to hunt those down quite often but the problem is you're kind of stuck doing the rest of the game in order to actually win it so the expeditions are more of a side quest rather than actually a focus another difference is that the ancient ones have their own unique cards for encounters and their mysteries. Now I like this. I like the fact that the Ancient Ones in this, the lore is explained in more detail so new players to the Arkham series can actually get a feel of what the Ancient One is and why it's there. So it does tell a better story from the Ancient One's perspective. However, in terms of the encounters, it's not much different from Arkham Horror. Both of them get you really immersed in their world with great encounter flavour text. Arkham Horror did it brilliantly, and Eldritch Horror is no different. You get lots of different encounters, and each one is great to read. The skill checks make sense, and the conditions you pick up, such as mental disabilities or physical injuries or even just debts. You know, you spent too much money, and now these guys might just suddenly come back and get you later. And that's one thing I do like, actually. In Arkham Horror, bad things would just happen to you sort of there and then. Occasionally, some stuff was timed, but not much. In this one... A lot of the conditions are timed based on the Mythos deck, which basically, I think it's called Reckoning, where if the symbol pops up on a Mythos card, if you have a condition that has that symbol, you then activate what it does. And that means that it's kind of push your luck, you know, okay, fine, I'm going to take a loan out and buy some really cool stuff from the market. I'm okay for now. Then two turns later, the Reckoning symbol comes up, and suddenly you flip over your card to realize that some brutes are trying to bust open your kneecaps, in order to get the money back. Make a strength check. If you fail, lose items. If you pass, you're all good. You know, that kind of thing. And that's really cool. I like that part of Eldritch Horror. Eldritch Horror doesn't have enough of that, and it would benefit from it. But that's a unique thing to Eldritch. But I'm getting into too much detail here. The big question is, 
what do I think of Eldritch Horror, and do I think it's better than Arkham? Now, I think Eldritch Horror is a great game. I think it's really good. I think if you don't already have Arkham Horror, you should get Eldritch Horror. It is simpler to learn, it is still good, and it will happily get you involved in this universe, and being Fantasy Flight, you know they will support and expand it. However, if you already own Arkham Horror, this is my beef, there are good and bad sides to both versions, but neither one of them has anything that tilts it above the other. So I think if you already own the Arkham Horrors, there's not much call for you to get Eldritch Horror unless you've only got, say, like the base game of Arkham. If, like me, you've got all the expansions to Arkham Horror, there's not much call for you to get Eldritch Horror um, unless you really are an Arkham fanatic and you just play nothing but Arkham games all the time. Personally, I may or may not get Eldritch Horror in the future, I don't know, but one of the biggest problems it has right now is that it feels incomplete. Arkham Horror has been expanded to high heaven and now it's got loads of encounters so no game is ever the same, you never remember the same card that comes up again and every game is unique. This one has a problem though, Eldritch Horror, because they've only released a small amount of cards for each set of encounters. Now in a four player game we were able to cycle through some of those cards in one sitting and that was just one game for that ancient one. Now granted, each Ancient One has its own unique deck for itself, but all the other encounters are general. So you might find that you start finding repeat encounters in your next game, which is a bit of a, mm, it's a bit of a detraction from theme really, whereas in Arkham you had something like 40 to 60 cards for every district, let alone all like, all the other bits and bobs. So it was rare that you ever came up with the same thing twice in a smattering of games, let alone two games in a row, or let alone the same game. You know, we did have repeat encounters come up, so there just isn't enough cards in each deck. I reckon you would probably get maximum four players out of this game by playing each ancient one once each before repetition started settling in and you wanted more. Now this is Fantasy Flight, and we know what Fantasy Flights are like. They expansion, 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 expansion. They will be bringing out God knows what for this, just like they did with Arkham. And it's blatant that this whole mini deck thing is an excuse for them to expand it later, which is a bit of a nitpick for me, really, because, I mean, you know, I want you to release a game to be as good as it can be now and then expand it to make it even better. Don't release, like, a piecemeal game and then expect me to pay loads of money to expand it later with the stuff that you should have put in the original box. It just seems like a cop-out just to get more money. But that's kind of fantasy flight for you. I mean, take Cosmic Encounter, how many expansions have we got for that now? Uh, it's It just works that way, really. So I suppose take it or leave it, but this is one thing that puts me off buying it because I just know I'm going to be spending on all the expansions just like I did with Arkham, and then it would be a case of, well, which one do I want to play, Eldritch or Arkham? I don't know. I like both. Maybe that's one reason why I would get the game, because both of them are good in different respects, but I think it's more of a luxury item if you already own Arkham. I can't see myself really going for it as a an owned game, because I've only got so much space on the shelves for a start, but it's also, I can only have so many games. And I just think that Arkham's good enough for me as it is, and Eldritch is good, and I will happily play it if it's on the table, but I just don't think I need to own both. So, you know... Great game, and I think you should try it, and if you haven't got Arkham already, I think you should get Eldritch Horror, because I think it's just a nice streamlined entry to the game, but if you're already an Arkham fan, 
be a pretty good sticking with Arkham, or just get Eldritch Horror if you really want the full collection. So, Eldritch Horror. Okay, 2013, it's nearly over. Now, before I get into this, I'm just going to apologise slightly. If my voice goes a little bit weird, it's because I'm drying up quickly because i got a bit of a sore throat while doing this. So, you know, apologies in advance for that. But, 2013, it's almost over, and I felt that, because pretty much every other podcaster does it, I should do my top game of 2013 as well. However, I'm doing it slightly differently from most because I noticed a lot of people stick up their top 50 games of 2013, but it's not actually games that were published in 2013, it was just top 50 games they played in the year. Now, I don't want to do that. I will play games new and old, but I'm more interested in the games specifically made this year that I have played. Now, there have been a lot of games made this year, and I am not Tom Vassell. I do not get the opportunity to play every single game that gets released. So you have to understand that I cannot play every single game that was released in 2013, so this is my opinion based on what I have experience with this year. Now, to run through the list on BoardGameGeek of what was made in this year, I have not played games such as Zpocalypse, Nothing Personal, uh, I have not played, let's see, I've not played Glass Road, I've not played Francis Drake, I've not played City of Iron, it came out around August time, I have not played Bruges, although I do want to play that game because it does look pretty sweet. Uh, I have recently, only just recently managed to get Eldritch Horror in game. I've not played Firefly the game. So there are a few that I have not played. However, there is a lot that I have. So first off, I'm going to start with some honourable mentions of ones that didn't make my top spot, but I think these are great games and you should give them a try as soon as possible. First up, and I'm not going to go into too much detail on these mentions, we got Caverna the Cave Farmers. It was only released at Essen and in November 2013 everywhere else, and if you go on my blog you can see my full written review of that game. It is effectively Agricola 2.0, and I'm not going to spoil which one I like better out of the two, but Caverna is a brilliant game about building up your farm and your cave in a sort of Stone Age fantasy time where you've got to plough fields in order to grow your veg, you've got to have pastures in order to keep animals, but you've also got to furnish your cave with room tiles that all have different abilities or victory point conditions, and it's the component quality is top-notch in this game. There is so much you get for your 60 quid. I know that sounds expensive, but believe me, the box is huge and it is heavy. You could use this as an alternative for weight training. It's that heavy. And I thought Terra Mystica had a lot in it. You know, this is a lot of good quality components. But Caverna the Cave Farmers didn't make my top spot, but if I was going to do a top three, I think it would easily make that list. It's a very quality game, and you should check it out as soon as possible. Although, feel free to check out Agricola as well. That's an awesome game as well. Second honourable mention? Well, I've just been talking about it for ages. Eldritch Horror. I think it is one of the best games of 2013. It's hard to distinguish whether I like it enough to want it because I'm an Arkham Horror fan and I already have the previous set of games. But if you don't have any of them and you want to get started into Arkham Horror, then I think Eldritch Horror is a fantastic way to start. And you know it's going to get expanded, so it's only going to get better from here. So, Eldritch Horror makes another honourable mention.
The next honourable mention is Forbidden Desert. Now this is a sequel to Forbidden Island, which was one of the most popular family cooperative games that existed. It had rules similar to Pandemic, but it was really family friendly and you could get into the game so well and it worked nice and it was cheap. Now Forbidden Desert is the sequel to that game. It's, the difficulty has been bumped up quite significantly, in my opinion, but similar mechanics, you've got the grid of tiles where you're, you are the survivors of a plane crash and you have to navigate this desert to put the ship back together. Problem is, all the parts are buried and you've got to search for them by flipping the various tiles. But while this is going on, you've got to survive against the sun and not run out of water, and you've got to survive against the sandstorms that are burying you under a ton of sand. The more sand that collects, the harder it is to get the tiles out. Eventually, the sandstorm will pick up to such an extent that you just automatically lose the game as you are buried under sand. It's a very tough game in my opinion. I mean, I've only played it on the easier difficulties, and I still find it quite a tough game. But again, it's still family friendly, and if I was going to pick which one I preferred out of the two, even though I've not played Forbidden Island as such, looking at the two concepts, and after playing Desert, I'd go play Desert. So, I think if you want something that's easy for the family to get into, but is a nice little co-opted game, and again, fairly cheap, but certainly enough of a challenge that you can't just steamroll through the game, then I'd say give it a try. That's Forbidden Desert. Well, that's enough honourable mentions, so let's get to the big one. My personal opinion, the top game of 2013. Now, when I think of a top game of the year, I have to take a lot of factors into account. So, firstly, you've got how much does the game cost? How much depth does it have? Does it work for the target audience? Can it accommodate a lot of players? Is the game length short enough so that you can get a lot of games in? Or if it's long enough, does it involve you for the entire time? So there's all sorts of things that I consider for a top game of the year. Now, I have reviewed this game on my blog, so some of you might have guessed which one this is already. And bear in mind, I already put Caverna down as an honourable mention, so it's not that. Figured it out yet? Begins with S. Small game. Asmodee Editions. Released in, I believe, August 2013? Spirium. Yep. Spirium is a quality little mini Euro game. As a small box, it costs 20 quid. Maximum 22 quid you should be paying for this game, which is dirt cheap for a game which contains such depth. It effectively contains enough strategic play and tactical thought that each game never plays out the same. Each number of players dramatically influences how the game runs, and it's all done just by its simple market mechanic, which is effectively nine cards laid out in a grid of three, 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 and you place your meeples in between the cards rather than on them, and each card gets more expensive the more meeples that are surrounding it. It's effectively constructing the theme of a market. You're sending your meeples out to the market to use certain characters, acquire patents, or build buildings. Now you can use this to your advantage. If something's really popular, stick your meeple down, take them off, and get a load of money for it. Or if you want to hinder someone else, stick your meeple down and just make his life that little bit more expensive. But failing that, knowing how to play that market properly over the rounds that occur, I believe there are six rounds in total, each round is quintessential to the game, 
and you have to make good use of the event cards when they come up as well. And because you can tell which ones are coming in the next round, you have to think, ooh, should I prepare for that? Should I use that first? Should I get my meeples down as quickly as possible? Should I get lots of meeples? But the problem is if I get lots of meeples, that means people are going to start buying stuff before I've put all mine down. But then my factories need meeples. Ooh, but do I go for Spirium instead, which is a kind of a mineral resource? There's so much to think about in this game. And this is like £20, where even the component quality is good. I mean, this is Asmodee Editions. They don't skimp when it comes to quality components. Effectively, your components are a collection of little green crystals that look cool, a bunch of meeples, a load of coins, uh, 72 cards, one board, and a small rulebook, and a selection of basic tokens. Now, the box is very small. It will store on your shelf easily in amongst other games that are like twice the size. And for £20, it really does pack so much thought and depth. For compared to games that are twice the value, like 40, 50 quid, and will take twice as long, you can wrap up a four player game of this in 90 minutes without too much trouble. Five player game, which is the maximum amount, two, two hours is about right. Some games can take longer, but then that depends on new players and the level of analysis paralysis. And fair play, that can get in the way, but not as much with this game as in others. You can shoot through it reasonably quickly. And I mean, a two-player game, you could wrap up in 30 minutes if you're going really quick. Um, I've yet to try a two-player game. I've only played it with three, four, and five players. But I'm sure it would work either way. The rulebook is clear to understand. Everything is quite colourful on the table. The There are multiple paths to victory, so you can choose a different one each time. The game is varied in the sense that the market is never the same each turn. It is never the same each game as the only part of it that is determined is the because it's split into an A, B, and C deck, the C deck is just one round worth of cards. So you know that all of those are going to come out. You don't know which order, though. If all the pricey buildings at the end are right next to each other, then think how expensive they're going to be, because everyone's going to crowd around them. But maybe you have thought ahead of time and thought, well, I don't want the big buildings, I just want the factory, or I'm just going to spend my last round abusing all the, what well, abusing, using all the characters and just basically getting a lot of cheap points from there. There is just so much to think about and the game is easy to teach. I can teach this in less than 20 minutes and that's every aspect of the game. It's easy to pick up but it's difficult to get a master strategy in but then even then you could win this game without having owned it. You know, I win this reasonably often in the times I've played it but Anybody can pick up this game and learn it fairly quickly. Uh, the cards are fairly intuitive as to what they do, so you don't have to explain it too often. Although, one nitpick is that they should have put the names of the characters on the cards, because they're in the rule book, but for some reason they're not on the cards. I don't know, but that's only a minor nitpick. And this game could easily be expanded in the future. All it needs is more cards for each age, more patents, more buildings, more characters. Easy. Job done. And you've got, you've just made a game even better. Taking all that into consideration, cheap price, good strategic depth, good tactical variety, good variation in the cards, good variation in the games, multiple paths to victory, good components, and all for £22. Now, most games that have this level of quality or depth to them will cost you twice that much. Terra Mystica is one of my favourite heavy duty Euro games. But it is heavier than this one, and that costs about nearly, well, probably more three times the value of this game. 
So, you're getting this kind of depth for a third of the cost of something like that. It's easier to learn and teach, it's easier to play and master, but it still requires enough thought so that you're constantly involved and you don't have to worry too much about downtime or analysis paralysis unless you are playing with the most AP-prone people in the world. But to be honest, you can't really avoid that with most games. So that's my top game of 2013. I own it, I love it, and I will always play it given the chance, Spirium. Well, that's it for the podcast for 2013. The next podcast will be released in 2014, January. So thank you for listening to me for 10 glorious episodes of 2013. I hope you've enjoyed the way it's gone so far. I hope to start keeping the intro consistent. I'm going to be bringing in top charts more often as I go through. I am going to obviously keep up the first impressions and bring in discussions now and again. And of course... The blog's still going to be going on as per usual. Now, some reviews might get put up over the Christmas period. I have plenty of spare time while I'm in Taunton, so I will basically look on getting some written stuff sorted. I'm going to be thinking about video reviews in the future. I'm looking into it. I have a camera and I have a microphone, so if I can learn how to sync the two together and think of a good backdrop or format, I might get round to doing that someday. But for now, I'm going to go back to Taunton, my hometown in Somerset, start playing games like Dixit and Carcassonne constantly with the family, but also look forward to what my brother has decided to buy for the family. I have hints that he's bought Pandemic, which will be uh, particularly interesting because I don't think my parents will be able to get it, but we'll, we'll see how that goes. However, I'm going to look forward to seeing his face when he unwraps my Christmas present, where I have bought him Civilization by Sid Meier's and the two expansions for it, the board game version, because he is addicted to Sid Meier's Civilization 4 on the PC. So I hope he's going to enjoy that game, although chances are he might only be able to actually play it with me, so the parents will definitely not get it. But it might give him an incentive to get some of his mates around and enjoy it. Failing that, it's a good game with two players, and I visit home fairly often, so... I'll be more than happy to play it with him, but I think he'll enjoy it quite a bit. As for upcoming reviews, well, at the moment, it's pretty random. I don't know what I'm going to review in the next month. I'm just going to take it as they come. I will hope to get some expansions of Cosmic Encounter written up soon. That's probably the next guaranteed one. But there's a lot of games that I would like to get reviewed and bought in the future. That I'm hoping to do. Seasons for One is a game I own that is pretty good and I hope to get that reviewed. I also want to get Lords of Waterdeep reviewed because I know that's a popular game. I would also like to review the Ticket to Ride maps. Starting with Europe and working my way through Asia and India for example. One game that I have recently bought for my mum for her birthday and for myself is a game called Expeditions, which I was lucky enough to find one UK retailer that had it in stock from the US, because they weren't planning to sell it over here. It's based on an old Ravensburger game called Wildlife Adventure, and another one called Expeditions, and, well, I can't really explain it too much now, so I just urge you to go look it up. It's called Expeditions Famous Explorers, and you can find a review for it by Tom Vassell, and, like I say, the title may not suddenly wow you, but believe me, I've played the original version of this game, The Wildlife Adventure, throughout my childhood with the family. It's a good little game, and I sincerely say that you should go and look it up. But for now, 
That's it from me. I'm going to go treat my throat because it is drying up like a used piece of sandpaper right now. So I need to go rest it up and get some water in me. So that's me, Luke Hector, from the Broken Meeple Podcast, episode 10. Signing off for 2013. Have a Merry Christmas and a great New Year. See you soon.